From beach towels to tea towels, and from mugs to water bottles, the TNT Shop has it all. Browse our shop now at tntradio.live. Weekends are better when you spend it with us. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. Welcome back to the fourth and final hour of the Sunday edition of Weekends with Jason Olbort. I'm delighted that you can join me for this and the other hours today. Gosh, it's been a good show. We've had a lot of ground to cover, and I think that this hour might be the one that you say was the best of the day. And it's not biased because I know, Kate, personally, we became good mates on the campaign trail. But Kate's work, uh, Kate Mason's work is just spectacular. I can't believe how much um, I learn every time I speak to Kate and the dedication that is involved in the work that she does. And she'll be on in just a moment. Now, I just want to backtrack for those that uh, aren't aware that Davos is over for another year. You can all breathe a sigh of relief. But things didn't go necessarily as well as planned. Reporting on the recently concluded World Economic Forum annual Davos Love Fest conference, its central theme was rebuilding trust. Jordan Schachtel wrote to the WEF crowd, rebuilding trust often meant doing a better job to silence people by filtering out what they deemed misinformation and disinformation. In short, the problem isn't them, it's the people who are in the way. In order to rebuild trust, they want independent platforms like the one that Schachtel wrote, Substack, to be out of the way through invasive surveillance and censorship measures. He went on to say, though, that newly elected Argentinian president, Javier Malay, went into the belly of the beast armed with a freedom mother of all bombs. His entire address was a masterclass of an in-person rebuke of the Davos agenda, and it immediately inspired voices for freedom around the world. After winning the November election, Malay declared that he didn't intend to guide lambs, but instead to awaken lions. And that's exactly what he did from the podium in Davos this week, Shaktul wrote. Well, awakening lions is what this hour will also be about. Kate Mason has an extensive background in welfare and community development. She has spent the last three years getting up to speed with the global narratives which are shepherding us into a dystopian world of surveillance. Goodness me, we're humans, the environment where we live, what we eat, our genetic code, etc., are all being raised to the ground so we can build back better. You've heard that term, haven't you? Kate endeavours to get as much of the bigger picture as possible. And as she follows different global narratives, is increasingly aware that they are all colliding into a powerful net of vested interests and monitored people, leading to massive wealth transfers, all being orchestrated through our government. Kate is a member of Community Voice Australia, which advocates for government and public-private partnership transparency and that people have a genuine voice in matters affecting them and their environment. Kate Mason, welcome to Weekends. Thank you, Jason. Lovely to see you. Well, you too. Thanks for coming on the show today. We have got a lot to get through. Um, and uh, I don't want it to just be a, an information download because it's the nuance and the detail that you are so good at mastering. So we might slow down on certain points and embellish there and get to explain to our viewers and listeners where it is that they may be able to find they can get some form of advantage by getting involved in a constructive may in a constructive way represented by facts figures real arguments real evidence that therefore is something that they can make a significant contribution and turn this big globalist ship around maybe even sink it where should we start should we go to climate change and just sort of get an update of how this 
this whole story, this agenda is now turning into an octopus going off into different directions? Yeah, that's a good place to start. Um, and this just came, uh, what I'm going to discuss or start discussing today. So I was on the World Economic Forum website uh, five days ago and saw uh, an article they put up last or in 2022 about how climate change is causing an insurance crisis in Australia. Um, I did then see that the ABC and different, you know, different articles in the ABC did cover it at the time, but I haven't seen much or I don't think many people are aware of the narratives that are being crafted around climate change and their actual homes and private um, private home ownership, as well as being able to rent. Um, so I wanted to start there and yes. then go into different things that I'm involved with at the moment with farmers and et cetera. So just to go from there. Yeah, so, please, please yeah. do just to just to clarify that for for our viewers and listeners, insurance is is a, is a kind of a, a secret thing here. Something that we don't really take into consideration. Many people think that maybe if I fix the interest on my uh, on my mortgage, then I know I've got certainty in terms of what I need to pay out to to keep you know the wolves at bay and no one to repossess my home. For a tenant, they might sign a twelve month or a two year lease or something like that. But insurance costs, compulsory insurance on your home, for example, uh, that you have to have because the mortgage uh, the bank requires it, uh, have been escalating at, at a rate of knots. I know our insurance is unbelievably expensive now. And I wonder if it gets to a certain point that people will be forced to sell. Is that the direction that we're headed here? That's the direction. Um, so there was a report put out by the Climate Council, which is an Australian body called Uninsurable Nation, Australia's Most Climate Vulnerable Places. So they're saying one in 25 homes in Australia will be uninsurable by 2030. So there's nothing nuanced about that. Mm. Um, so when you go to their report, and I would encourage, so what I really want to encourage is that the Australian people actually look at this because you're going to have to get involved in this. Otherwise, you're going to lose your homes or a, a big chunk of people will incrementally. So they've pulled out the Australia's most climate vulnerable places, which um, include uh, Brisbane, Moncrief, I don't know how to say that in Queensland, Richmond and New South Wales, these are the electorates, the local the local council areas, Page, yes. Indy, Nichols, Hindmarsh, Morant, Morant, Morano and Wright. So quite a number in Queensland. Um, but they have a map. So you can go to their map. And if you just search for climate council, climate risk map, you can put your postcode in there and you can see how you how your area, your actual town has been assessed for um, high risk climate change scenarios. So, you know, there's a lot of a lot of the country in Australia is assessed as high risk and medium risk. And so high risk is when, I'm just going to just go down to see what they're saying. So high risk homes have an annual, so they're forecast that you have an annual damage costs from climate change and extreme weather equivalent to 1% or more of the property's replacement costs. And these properties are effectively uninsurable. Now, if you're assessed as a medium risk, you have damage costs annually equivalent to 0.2 to 1% of the property replacement cost. And so that you're also going to get in trouble in that medium risk area. So they're looking at riverine flooding, coastal inundation, extreme wind, bushfires and surface water flooding. And what they do is they, um, so even if you're at low risk for flooding and low risk for fire, they would combine that. 
So those low risks might then still make you come into the medium risk um, threshold. Yes. So then you have the issues coming up there. So I would suggest that everyone goes on and has a look because this is something people are going to have to get involved in. Um, they're high emissions projections. So they're going from a high emissions projection, which is that um, there will be a 4.4 degrees Celsius rise in temperatures by 20, uh, 2100. And that comes from the IPCC 2021 climate report. And there's a lot of scientists around the world who are refuting that that number. Um, one, what is their solution? And this is just one of six. Support communities to build back better. So towns, cities and communities must be rebuilt in a way that takes into account the inevitable future changes in climate and makes them more resilient. And this may mean in some areas not rebuilding at all, but managed relocations must be discussed. So we're fine. Uh, there's a lot of documents uh, just looking in the last few days where managed retreat is very much on the agenda, where they manage you out of your home and your community. Um, can I just can I just get you to pause just on that term, managed retreat? Many people wouldn't be aware, but this is an official term that's now being used by government bodies uh, around the country and perhaps around the world now. So what you're saying when you say managed retreat is that this climate alarmism with these um, artificially created numbers here, when you talk about medium risk damage, um, high risk damage, the idea that your house um, might be worth a million dollars to replace if it were burnt to the ground by insurance. But if 1% of that is spent per annum to fix it based on these climate disasters, which is only $10,000, which is probably not much more than a coat of paint uh, and, and perhaps a, a timber repair, uh, it's not very much money, but that's what they're deeming to be uninsurable. It, it's extraordinary. But then the managed retreat is the process whereby they collectively decide here that this is an area that's got too many $10,000 repairs going on. So we're going to have to move you all out into another area. And and, and I'm assuming, uh, I'm not trying to jump ahead of the, the narrative here, but uh, that this is where the smart city concept, because they're going to come back and build back better. This is kind of the direction it's heading. Is that right? That's what I'm thinking. It, this Reading that report put a lot of dots together for me because I've been looking at smart cities for the last year that, you know, which is considered resilient, resilient buildings and resilient, you know, the stack and pack and have basically, um, you know, have a massive component of what they mean by resilient is that having everything being analysed um, and, and data created on you and data collected on everything you do within your home and how the house functions. So, yes, I'm seeing that. And that's why I'm seeing these massive building developments in currently in progress. That would make sense that if one in 25 homes in Australia is going to be uninsurable, that we're going to be, because also then when you go to sell that house, you're not going to be able to sell it for very much. Yes. Who's right. going to buy an uninsurable house? So you're then selling it for chips to, I don't know who to, but it'll be to some, some great advantage of a globalist agenda. Um, and, and yeah, so then where are you going to go? And and then you also have the combined thing where they, you know, they're very clearly stating that many, many people's jobs are going to be replaced by AI in the not in the very close future. And then they talk about us being able to have a universal basic income where we we, you know, like they talk about it like this fantastic thing, you're replaced by machines and you're replaced by AI and robotics. But you can sell your data and 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 teach these machines how to do it better and you'll get a universal basic income which of course will be linked to what sort of citizen what sort of digital citizen you are um 
and and whether or not you abide by certain agendas and say certain things. And if you challenge anything, you will be locked out is how I'm seeing it. Well, it's it's very hard to refute it because the pattern's already there. We we saw it during the pandemic that uh, one step short of compulsory medicine, but we were basically uh, pushed into that situation that if you didn't comply, you were excluded. And politicians around the world openly um, were happy to exclude. Who can forget Gladys Berejiklian, the Premier of New South Wales, saying, "Oh, I don't want to be in a with an unvaccinated person." I mean, how do you how do you say that if you'd substituted the term unvaccinated for any other term to describe a human being? It is automatic discrimination, except in this case. Now, um, uh, just a couple of terms here. In, in the idea of one, sorry, one in 25 homes being uninsurable and therefore uninhabitable, uh, you can't sell it. It's basically a write-off. This is part of this situation. If it's not given to a globalist agenda to develop in some direction, it's part of this whole idea of rewilding, um, the idea that they want to bring people into cities and then just make these natural national parks, etc. Now, the only way that I read that rewilding can actually be a thing to, to bring people closer together is that once again, that the ugliest word in the world, depopulation, is, is, is a concept that can't be dismissed at this point. Because if you're going to bring people in and they become overcrowded, that gives rise to a whole bunch of other, you know, if they want to go down their climate agenda, too many people, concrete jungle, very, very hot, bad, bad, bad. All of it is telling us that they just don't want the human population at 8 billion anymore. Why don't they just come out and say it? Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I don't know why. I guess it feels that it would <laughs> alert people too much. But they definitely want to stacked and packed in smart cities and away from nature. They are definitely creating the narrative that we are uh, intrinsically bad for nature. And they have, you know, technology where they're trying to convince people through PR spins that nature's good for you so you can um, access it through your headset in virtual reality and you know this sort of this sort of narrative which is incredibly disturbing and they also are very very hell-bent on transforming the genetic code of food um in in and food and people through crispring to to yeah that we're, we're all are fundamentally dangerous to the climate in the meantime, okay. oh, sorry. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, just on that, I want you to clarify for me the point, the term CRISPR that I heard you say there for people that may be unaware. It's kind of this 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 genetic manipulation yet again. Is is that how I understand it? Yeah, it's a it's a way of cutting the gene. So they call it a genetic scissor, genetic scissors. So you can cut the gene, you can insert something in to create a new genetic code, or you can cut a little. So they they sell it like they could cut. Um, genetic ir irregularities in people so they can cut it out so you no longer have that propensity to get a disease or, you know, or whatever else. So it implies that everyone's DNA code needs to be, um, you know, collected. And then you hear about, uh, I was watching, listening to a Bayer Monsanto talk and, you know, I can't remember the name of the guy, but he was talking about how... Um, well, this is slightly different, but implantable tech inside your body that picks up on any virus you get and sends out an alert, and that's definitely coming, and, and it is. If you read the documents, they, they talk about this all the time. And also that you can we, they can engineer us so that we'll never get a cold. Oh, sure. Um, uh, based on their success rate so far, do you believe them? Um, no, but I, I think they'll try. Yeah. I think oh. everything that's coming in is going to be very, very damaging to the human body and the environment. 
it, it's um, it, it beggars belief, and I know this is a very disturbing topic for uh, our viewers and listeners. Uh, but I appreciate that uh, that you want the best quality, latest information that's out there, uh, and that's why we're talking about it. But the best part about the work that Kate does that she always works towards a solution, and yes, it does involve activism in the term of getting involved. And of course, there will be always a point where everyone will say that is enough for me. I'm getting up. I'm going out. I'm doing something, whether it's attending a rally, writing a letter actively getting involved, becoming a candidate, all sorts of things that you can do. But it's a lot more than uh, activism at this stage. There are already politicians that are out there in local government and other places, uh, state and federal, that are certainly paying attention to it. But it's the sporadic nature of what we're seeing and the, uh, and the, and the way that it's deliberately pushed apart. And of course, when the agenda is very, very easily um, uh, sidelined or, or quietened down, you don't get this on your nightly news cycle that says, hey, we're doing really well now. Uh, we've got this plan to, uh, to protect protect people, one in 25 who are going to lose their homes by 2030 because of uninsured rates. They just don't talk about it until it's absolutely upon us. And then there'll be another crisis and the government of the day will pay heavily or dearly for it and be given back to the, the alternate government who will then come in and do the exact same thing. And the wheels on the bus go round and round. Kate, I know that's sort of, um, again, jumping ahead, but I, I, I want people to understand that it's not all, it is a lot of doom and gloom, but there's also a way that the people who understand what's going on and for the fight back that comes means that the best days can still be ahead of us in many ways because it is up to the individual to be able to make the contribution to knock this on the head. It's why I read out a bit about Jordan Shackle's report earlier from Javier Malay um, giving it to them at the uh, Davos World Economic Forum to encourage you that there are big names around the world starting to go, but this is a big grassroots level uh, because there's no other way. It affects all of us the same way. How about we take a break and when we come back more here on Weekends with Jason Olber with my guest this hour, Kate Mason, you're watching and listening to TNT. TNT's Jeremy Nell. Nice comment here from Rebecca. She says, the youngest people um, I work with are a bit more mature, but their interactions with the public is stifled. And she's referring to the excessive use of cell phones and social media and how it's making them so antisocial also. The business is open six days a week. One of his staff members formally requested that they shouldn't, you know, that they, could they be given permission not to have to work on Wednesdays so that they could help at the dog shelter. Now, as you know, I'm a dog lover. I have hunting dogs, I've got dogs coming out of my ears, my Malinois, and this dog, this Malinois is bright even by Malinois standards. She can do crossword puzzles, is lying under my desk at the moment, feeling sorry for herself because she's just come on heat for the first time and she's completely bewildered. She doesn't know why she's bleeding to death. It's not about whether it's a good or a bad thing to work at animal shelters. That's a delightful thing. It's a noble thing to do. But who in their right mind goes to their boss and says, would you mind? I'd rather not work on Wednesdays if it's okay because I've got other priorities in a, in a town down the road. Jeremy now on today's News Talk. TNT. Affordable housing, we can build that. Sustainable housing, we can build that. At MIT Modular, we understand the importance of housing for all and the importance of design, cost, and functionality. Our goal is to meet the needs of our growing population by converting shipping containers to livable units. If you're like-minded and in a position to invest in something meaningful and life-changing, we want to hear from you. We are a team of professional architects, engineers, and financial and tax experts dedicated to offering unique solutions that provide a brighter future. 
our Opportunity Zone Fund offers investors both real estate and operating business diversification, five-year tax deferral on capital gains, annual tax benefits, and ultimately tax-free appreciation potential. There are Opportunity Zones all over America. If you're interested in learning more about our services, need affordable housing, or want to participate in creating a new vision for tomorrow, give us a call in the U.S. on 385-985-5702 or read more at MITModular.com. MIT Modular. We can build that. Our next steps to space. This time we go back to the moon to learn to live, to work, to invent, to create. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. And welcome back to Weekends. And my guest this hour is Kate Mason. The information is, well, it's very, very powerful. It's disturbing. But it also means that this is the point where you just get up and say it's time. And it's time to get involved. Kate is a member of Community Voice Australia. Kate, that's one of the organisations that you're involved with. Who else? Uh, and first of all, can other people join? And are there other organisations also involved at this level? Um, so Community Voice Australia is very newly formed. And we basically are we, we want um, government transparency and accountability and their public-private, you know, their private relationships and their, yes. you know, and we want all of that. So we want people to have all the information available to them and then they can have a genuine, because you can't have a genuine voice if you actually don't know what's going on. And the vast majority of the Australian public has no awareness of what's going on. Um, so, so that's what we have. At the moment, we're working on our... Um, our membership criteria and how it's all going to look. So we're just in early days, but we do have a website, communityvoiceaustralia.org, and we are looking at just projects and focusing on projects that can be used for people around Australia. Oh, that's fantastic. So there is a starting point, and that and that's the that's the idea that there is somewhere to bounce off from and somewhere to start and to consolidate. Uh, now, what else is going on in terms of other uh, organisations that uh, are starting to notice or that we should be aware of in this field? I just wanted to mention just a couple of other papers that are out because it's not just one okay. climate climate um, group that are saying this. There's the Actuaries, A-C-T-U-A-R-I-E-S Institute, mm -hmm. and they put out a green paper and they've been quoted in the ABC. So that was in 2022. They talk about um, managed retreat being necessary. Um, and then up, and then there's also going to be because your your house is going to be up have to be upgraded with whatever they bring in around the building code. So of course for new buildings they'll have to be upgraded, so they're going to become a lot more expensive. But also in your existing home you're going to have to upgrade um, to make it climate resilient and whatever that means. And I and so I haven't got to that yet, but they also have a disclaimer at the end where they just say our models are uncertain. Our par parameters are uncertain. Our process is uncertain. We cannot, you know, our data is uncertain. So they have this little disclaimer, but everything is going ahead based on this data and these models. So this is, I guess, what I, I need people, I want people to take action because I'm only just looking at it in the last few days, but it's absolutely something people need to take, you know, like take responsibility for this to find out what modelling, what climate change modelling are they relying on to make these judgment calls on people's properties and start to fight it from that that um, place. So that has been happening in New Zealand because I think New Zealand must have had this all coming in 
prior. Um, I just also want to say the New South Wales government has partnered with a group called XDI and they have a they're part of a climate risk group and there you can see they're talking about how climate change could impact your property and they're talking about costly repairs, rising premiums and market devaluation. So this is all here. It's all here ready to go. Um, there's a group in New Zealand who've been fighting this. They're, I think it's, I can't remember the exact area they're in, but they're called the Coastal Rate Payers United and you can, they've got a website. So they looked at the modelling. So I, my understanding is their area was seen at, you know, huge risk of climate change and rising oceans. And they, the and so they went. And so then infrastructure was not being replaced in their area and houses were becoming uninsurable. So they're a little bit ahead of us. So they they got together and they actually funded um, independent research and they've got a lot they say the climate change modeling that was relied upon by the local council is completely flawed so i would suggest that we need to see what they've done see what sort of modeling they're saying is flawed and what they've found out and then move on from there and become um you know become active around this space because if we sit back and allow it and don't challenge it it's going to go ahead yeah, that that's the point, isn't it? And 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 regardless of what you uh, think about climate change, and you too may believe, like many of us do, that the uh, the modelling is flawed and the argument isn't quite there. There's certainly enough uh, scientists out there refuting this uh, narrative. But this is a juggernaut of uh, of opinion, effectively, where the people that hold the power around the world, the globalists, for want of a better term, are insistent that this is the way that they want to run the world. It doesn't mean that it's going to get there, but we are certainly on the field now and it's game time. And that's the point of the uh, the exercise that we're doing. And Kate, you're out there, I guess you're you're playing um, a, a captain of the defence uh, in many ways. Uh, if, if we liken the, the metaphor to this, is it's game time, right? It's definitely game time. It's definitely people get engaged um, with actually because so Community Voice will take this on um, and then we will have links to where other groups are, are further ahead in terms of, you know, I've done some really good work here, but it's time to pay attention. Um, yes. It really is. Now, can I just ask in, in those terms, this is not about just um, clicking on a website and, and, and watching videos and exchanging them at all. This is something completely different. This is like, you know, uh, put the shoes and socks and the shirt and tie. It's it's business time, right? It's definitely business time. And, and I always, um, I think it's very important that we don't say anything unless we can prove it. So that, therefore it becomes quite extensive, you know, the amount of research that needs to go in because you can't just say something, you have to show, you have to show it. And um so, yes, I think the arguments have to be well-crafted, they have to be well-researched and they have to be well-documented um, and then you can you can go from that. And that's what Community Voice Australia is is doing and will do much more of. Oh, look, it's wonderful. Um, that I just feel confident that, uh, well, I know you personally, obviously, and we've been friends for some time, but uh, just that when, when I see your name on something, I know that it's the real deal. So I, I can't help but thank you enough. And it's something that all of us would want to get involved with. Now, where do we go next? Now, we've got this particular situation, but we've got the other side of it is this whole idea about food production. Um, I, I, I just can't believe that we were talking a year ago about mRNA being put into, into cattle. And of course, many of us went out there and loaded our freezes up with um, with as much uh, red meat as we could possibly find. It seems ridiculous, uh, almost hoarding food for the future. But, um, you know, when you might not realise that you might be eating your last steak, for example, uh, you see um, – 
uh, Tedros, the director of the WHO, coming out and making climate change a health risk and telling us that we all must eat more plant-based foods because of the environment. Tedros, maybe what you need to do is work out the origins of the COVID virus and not say another word until you work it out. I feel like as the people, we need to push back in certain ways. But it's this whole idea again that they're always one step ahead creating problems with the so-called problems that they invent for us. Where are we headed now in terms of food? Um, so that's all heating up really big time in Australia. So um, the first, and they call it cultured quail, but it's actually lab created quail. They work out how you, you know, what words you use so people don't become alarmed. So the first, the first lab created meat is about is in progress in Australia to be um, allowed into the food market. And that's all going ahead. You know, I had a I had a look through. So it's the company is called Vow, V-O-W Foods, and the the body, the Australian and New Zealand body that oversees the regulations is the Food Safety Australia New Zealand. Um, and they're in process to amend the Australian New Zealand food code code to allow for cell-based food within Australia. And if it goes ahead, it will allow Val Food to sell their lab meat in Australia. So that's that's where we're heading. And then they can just it just opens up the door for every other sort of lab meat. So the founder of one of the founders, there's two founders of Val. I had a quick look at their funding, who's funding them and who they've got grants for, and found a Saudi Saudi Arabian um, oil and gas company with chemical interests, you know, as one of their funders. But I, I need to spend a little bit more time in there. But they're really big guys that are funding these this vow who just look like cool, hip, groovy young men talking about climate change and we need to change, you know, the way we eat. I, they make it very clear, like if you search, it'll say, this won't replace traditional agriculture, this won't replace meat. However, I found a video where George, who's one of the founders, was talking about it and the interviewer you know, like probably a year or two ago. And the interviewer said to him, you know, how are farmers going to cope with this, you know, lab meat transformation of the food system? And he said, just like horses are no longer used for transport and are a niche enjoyment, he foresees the same thing may happen where there's a few regenerative farms left or ethical farms, he called it, where it's for wealthy people to buy meat from so they can hark back to previous times and show they can afford the luxury, but it will not be the mainstream experience. So that's what he said. And that is the narrative that's being um, that that is being said all over the place. Uh, the Bayer Monsanto, that, so CropLife crop is the big massive chemical companies that are all connected in with CRISPR and, you know, lab foods and everything else. They they signed a partnership with the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization, I think around 2020. So this is where we are heading. Um, and there's a quote by uh, Tony Hunter, a futurist for food, where he just says food is going to be, instead of farmers making food, technology companies will make food. And that's where we're heading. And, and there's massive issues in this because it's not only the health, the, the really big concerns of health, because it, it relies on immortalization of cells, which means you just keep a cell endlessly reproducing in a vat. And that, technically speaking, is precancerous and in some cases can be fully cancerous. So there's as that aspect. There's the aspect that they put synthetic vitamins and minerals into it. So nothing is natural. And even the, so the submission is open to allow, you know, um, FSANZ wants to hear what we have to say, the public has to say, and it closes on February the 5th. So we're going to put a submission in. 
they even say there's, you know, too high levels of, you know, artificial vitamins and everything in this, but because people won't be eating too much of it, it won't matter. So they say that, but yet you can hear that this is the way that food is going. You can hear it from a lot of different areas that that's where they're planning to go with food, that it's lab created. Um, so, yes, I think I, I want people also to be aware about that, that that's taking off and what, you know, not only the health issues, but imagine when every single food source is patented. That's what it leads to. You don't actually, I think he even might have said it, some, George might have said it from Val, you won't have like milk, you'll have another name for an artificial milk. Yes. So it's it's a product. It's not like milk that, you know, I mean, it's increasingly hard for someone to be a farmer anyway, but, you know, where people can just produce a few things and you can buy, you know, generic things off them, you will be buying products, patented products off, off companies, tech companies basically. Two, two points to bring up there is that um, you now wonder why it was that Bill Gates is the number one landowner in the United States. Uh, is he doing that so that he can breed his special natural cattle for the uh, elite cronies that are coming? We saw at uh, Davos the, um, uh, the the usual suspects arriving in their uh, expensive, you know, uh, oil burning vehicles and uh, and aeroplanes arriving etc so it, it's very clear now that when you've mentioned that and, and and the evidence there to prove it the video from george the founder of uh, vow foods is coming out and saying that it will be food production for the elites to feel like that this is how it works quite incredible isn't it that we live in a world that we're told every single day it's beaten over the head equality 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 and what they're really doing is now separating themselves from the rest of us in a way that pretty much shows that they believe that they are not the same as us is it because of of some other spiritual belief or some some uh, hidden hand that overrules these elite people? Or is it just the case that there is a process here where what they're trying to do is to turn us? You are what you eat after all. And if you are what you put under your skin, perhaps in the form of the digital identity, I think we're going to go there next um, in, in terms of how that all blends in. But if you put all that together, we are being transformed out of a homo sapien in, into some form of um, hybrid, artificial, something or other that certainly doesn't match how we believe that we were created by a creator at some time in the past. Kate, this is where it gets really disturbing and it feels like we're in the midst of a science fiction movie with all of these Dr. Evils running around working out ways that they can maximise their profit at the expense of the poor person being given food made from a perhaps a pre-cancerous cell. I mean, it, it, it's, it's vile. Yeah, it it's very, it's really vile. So they use climate change in feeding the world, the SDG. Um, I think feeding the world's number two and SDG is 13 for climate change. So they use them all the time for this. There's no, um, there's really no studies to show how it affects your body, what it's going to do to you. They they spin the, the um, narrative that it's equitable because it can, you know, I guess you can make all this goop really cheaply. You know, so it's there's, equitable there's that for term the equitable, right? Yeah. We're elite, but it's equitable for all the rest of you, Paul. Yeah, folk. that term is incredibly overused, as well yes. as transform. I mean, transform just means we're going to basically raise you to the ground and bring mm. you back up the way we want you to be. So, yes, it's fundamentally unfair. It's fundamentally flawed. It's it's dangerous, and it's absolutely dangerous to have our food sources put in tech companies' hands. I mean, how how more blatant can this be? This is it, right? Um, and these young uh, upstart entrepreneurs, because money talks, and if you can put a billion dollars or whatever that magical number is that gets you into this elite class, therefore that's where you are. And it was that cavalier approach to oh, who cares about the farmers. 
Uh, we'll just leave a little bit about that. Like, where where do these characters come from? Um, that that they have this this power that they're in the oil and gas field, uh, raise billions of dollars, or they fund it for the for this. It, 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 it's something else, isn't it? So when people say follow the money, as you may have seen in the last hour with our um, uh, interview there with um, Michael McCarthy, his book Follow the Money: uh, How China Bought the World. Now we're seeing that the same business model is being used around the world, and it seems that the human being is the enemy of the elite. In a, in a profit system here as they work to whatever that is going to happen with the population. But you have to think that if you've gone through the mRNA experience and now you're going into artificial food experience, you're being taken out while they rewild and shove you into a city, there's not much here that is uh, that is, is saying that the natural human being is going to be embellished uh, and advanced in any way. It's kind of the opposite. We're um, being turned into, a, into an artificial uh, synthetic product, synthetic vitamins, handing over our creativity, our productivity, to a robot in the form of artificial intelligence and promised a universal basic income, technically uh, some form of welfare, uh, which can only last a certain amount of time before they realise that there's not enough money and they don't even need us to take that. And we only get that, of course, with compliance. Kate, it is almost um, something that if, if we were, I don't know, 80 years ago, it'd be, it'd be a movie starring Boris Karloff. It, it, it's that type of horror film that we're seeing. But we are here to constructively deconstruct, and, and I suppose, the information that Kate's bringing us and also to paint a picture of the way out, some sort of pathway. This is a preliminary discussion in what will probably be one of the big, big topics of 2024 and beyond as we move towards um, this sustainable goal a date of 2030, something like that. But it is just, of course, around the corner. What we'll do now is we'll take a quick break and we'll come back for the final segment with Kate Mason here with me on Weekends with Jason Olborn on TNT. I'm Naheem Hines, professional football player and proud supporter of the Muscular Dystrophy Association. My mom was diagnosed with muscular dystrophy when I was 14 and I watched her struggle. But MDA helped her get the best treatments and care. And they also help kids like my buddy, Ethan. My name is Ethan and I'm 12 years old. Thanks to the Muscular Dystrophy Association and people like you, I have more hope than ever before. From day one, they've treated me like family at my local care center. MDA is the only one that funds over 150 care centers across the U.S. to help provide state-of-the-art care for adults and kids like me. For over 70 years, MDA has been transforming the lives of people living with muscular dystrophy, ALS, and other related neuromuscular diseases. They fund the research for breakthrough treatments, care, and cures. And MDA provides support to thousands of families like mine and Ethan's in communities like yours. Thanks to MDA, kids and adults can live life to its fullest. Join us and learn more at MDA.org today. She used to dance and dream of a better life, a brighter future. Today, thanks to Children International and friends like you, she dances for the world. Together, we give children in poverty a chance to set their sights high and achieve their dreams. Learn more about Children International and join us in our life-changing work at children.org today. When the whole world seems turned upside down, we sort through it together. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. Welcome back to Weekends. And if you were listening in the past segment, we were talking about the way that tech is trying to take over agriculture and farmers. Now, Kate, farmers are a pretty resilient bunch. I reckon that they've got some sort of rearguard action. Can you tell us what's going on? So I, in February the 6th, there's a rally in Canberra at Parliament House called the Reckless Renewables Rally. So if you look around the world, you will see farmers 
fighting back in a vast array of countries because they're under, they're completely being smashed from different things. So here in Australia, it's the massive rollout of what they call renewables um, and the transmission lines, which is destroying and going to destroy communities, um, the natural environment and the farming land. So this, the government says it won't destroy the, the um, farming land, but from everything I've heard and read, people can't live around these wind turbines and um, they're also very toxic. They've got BPA in the in the blades. Um, there's massive issues about having these normally um, international bodies that end up being given the contracts to build it. And then they have all these rights over your land as well. So yes, um, theoretically, you could probably have sheep around them, but the sheep aren't going to do very well because BPA is an endocrine disruptor and you're going to end up with massive amounts of toxicity. So um, and then people are going to just normal farmers who have some land and are doing it are going to move out because they can't, you know, the whole family is going to, the community will fall apart and the whole family is, you know, the health of their families is going to need to come first. So then you're going to have another transfer of wealth of farming land over to, um, you know, the very wealthy who are waiting and know that this is in, in, the, in the works. So in Australia, the farmers are fighting back. There's a farmer that I've interviewed a few times from out west, and he's very, very active. And he started up a with a group of other people. I think it's called the National Rational Energy Network. And they are just get bringing all people and all farmers together around Australia, as well as conservationists. There's a lot of conservationists who were very into renewable energy until they actually saw firsthand what it was doing to the environment. There's a massive pushback around the destruction of the environment going on um, in areas, as well as, you know, the wind turbines in the ocean and concerns about that. So 6th of February um, at Parliament House in Canberra, it starts at 10am, lots of farmers. I'm going to talk about food because the farmers will often say, well, you know, where's our food source going to come from? And I'm like, well, they don't really need you. And and I think that it's really important that farmers and other people get the actual bigger picture as to why farming land is being overrun. Gosh, it, it, it sounds like it is. I mean, imagine being a farmer right now and, and, and thinking, well, hang on a second, I, I'm in debt up to my eyeballs. We've had one or two bad seasons. Uh, do I just give up and get off the land? But at the same time, how can I give up this uh, third or fourth generation family business here? Uh, it, it almost reminds me of what we see when, if, if anyone's ever watched that uh, TV series Yellowstone and just when you watch and see how hard these uh, ranchers are fighting for there. And this is just fiction. And then, of course, it goes into the, the prequels and you see that this is a story that's been going for a hundred and something years. And then you realise that this is not just somebody who bought into a, into a farm uh, five years ago and it's a hobby and they got successful at it, it's been taken away. This is generational now, and you can see why there is such a, a big deal. But at the same time, not realising when a farmer thinking, hang on a sec, what do you mean we're not going to need farmers anymore? What are you going to eat? And uh, and that's, Kate, where you come in, I suppose, and you talk about people like Val Foods. Yeah, we're just going to print uh, cells. I mean, people must be um, fired up, nervous, and confused all at the same time. And so there's this emotional war going on, but then the unintended consequences that the conservationists are now realising, hang on a second, we've been barking up the wrong tree here. And it's in those situations where, where you get an unexpected uh, turn of events and then people go against the system, buck the system, a bit like someone being forced to take one extra jab that they were prepared to bargain with and they go, no, nah, no more. This kind of feels like we're in that same space. But where do we go from here, should we um, 
Consider, therefore, that the government knows that the farmers are going to resist and therefore we move into, again, more tech uh, reinforcement through digital ID. Uh, is this why this is another one that's being pushed through at the same time? Uh, yeah, digital ID is much broader, um, but it will definitely be the linchpin for how you get your food and whether or not you can get food. So I will talk a bit about that. But I, I mean, even just, just with the farmers, I've been talking to local farmers around here and abattoirs are closing down left, right and centre and there's supply chain issues where you can't get your animals in to be um, killed. So they're blocking a lot of things. So it's becoming less and less viable to be able to even have animals on land. So, so yes, there's a whole bunch going on. But I actually think unless we know what we're really fighting, you just kind of fighting a component of it rather than an overall picture. And that's, I guess, why I sort of want to frame things, um, you know, and not that food is the only issue with the farmers. It's also about getting us off land. Um, so the digital ID. So in Australia, we just had submissions close on Friday um, for the digital ID 2023 bill. And I just want to talk a little bit about that to alert people to a couple of aspects to that. So Community Voice Australia did, we did a 19 page submission um, regarding it. And there are clauses within the digital ID bill. So Peter Pham, who's a human rights lawyer in Australia, pointed that out. I'm really, really appreciative of that we've got lawyers that can look through acts because it's very difficult to do it. And he pointed out that though they keep talking about how it's voluntary, first of all, corporations can create these digital IDs. That's allowed for in the Act, of course. And then even though they say a number of times in the Act and, and they're advertising around it in the PR spin around it, the government said it's voluntary, there's subclauses in there which make it not voluntary. So um, the who it's it can, a regulator can exempt a party from the voluntary aspect of digital ID if it's satisfied that it's appropriate to do so. So that's incredibly vague and there's no way it's going to be voluntary based on everything I've been looking at for a number of years. The digital ID is a linchpin to be able to track your carbon credits, to be able to, um, you know, your access to food for food safety, you know, everything's food safety or safety. Um, you're basically going to have a digital ID to live in a smart city. They make that really clear. The World Economic Forum says we must have digital IDs. So digital IDs comes under the United Nations Development Goal number 16. And I think it's 16.9, which says give everyone in the world a legal identity. So you go from that legal identity, which just could be a birth certificate, but that has morphed into a digital ID um, in the United Nations documents themselves, the World Economic Forum documents themselves, digital ID, ID 2020, which is Bill Gates, Rockefeller creating a digital ID system. They all quote 16.9 of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals for why we need these digital IDs. And so I... And it's all in lockstep all around the world. It's got massive vested interests, of course, in the public-private partnership model. So I just, we just, I just pulled out every aspect, you know, like, oh, not every, because I didn't actually put um, digital ID and democracy, and I'm sure there's a lot there. But you know, the Internet of Bodies, the Internet of Things, biometrics, um, you know, how humans are going to need to be modified, um, you know, and then it's all linked to digital ID, AI, blockchain. Um, and looking uh, quite a bit at blockchain and pulled out, you know, quotes where they do talk about McKinsey and co talk about the metaverse and we're going to need digital ID for the metaverse. And that is where you're going to access increasingly entertainment, work, commerce, education, you know, so this is where they, they're pushing us onto an online world 
where we are a commodity on an online world. We then have to be a good digital citizen so they can sort of behaviorally change us. So we have some capacity to get an income. Policy Horizons, who's an arm of the um, Canadian government, talks, and, and they do talk about this all the time in the future because AI replacing jobs and um, robotics, that we will, they got to unbundle tasks. So you'll just, you'll, You'll just be like somebody that does a task, you know, like a task mm. over and over again and unbundled into this task. And they and then, then they go on to say a predeterminant of socioeconomic inclusion will be your social, they don't call it social credit, but your social rating score, just like Uber, just like, you know, eBay, where you rate, you rate services, we will be rated. And this is an arm of the Canadian government saying this. Um, so there's plenty of plenty of documentation around how we need to be good digital citizens um, to be able to survive. And the linchpin that will collect, you know, collect. So they, the way they sell it is it's all going to be secure because it's on blockchain and um, it's going to be where you don't have to show, you don't have to show information you don't want to. So they make the argument that you're part, you know, like say you say someone wants to see your driver's license, they can then see your address. You know, they can see information you may not want to share because all you want to share is your age if you're, you know, around 18. So they say, you know, these things will just be like you can only show the relevant information you want to. So that's how they sell it. It's completely false. It's a false narrative because what they have is smart contracts. And what smart contracts means is you need to have A plus B plus C plus D to access E. Mm. So everything will be collected on you and then they will say, okay, well, we need these five bits of information about you and that will allow you access. So it will be, you know, your vaccine passport. It will be how many carbon credits, how much did you move around, you know, et cetera, et cetera. What's your social credit score? What's your reputational score? You know, if policy arises and say your socioeconomic inclusion, that means your inclusion into being able to function in society will be determined on your um, you know, your reputational score that will be allocated to you by a whole bunch of, you know, like this, this is crazy. This is just so crazy. So this mm. is, this is where digital ID is the linchpin to allow this massive dystopian future that is fast descending on us. Um, the other aspect of this is that we are just commodities. So there's, I've talked a number of times about social impact bonds, but they're already doing it in Africa. So the first baby was born on the blockchain in 2019 in Tanzania, and that baby, the mothers had to, the mothers had a digital ID, and to they had to then have that digital ID to be able to access medicines or access vitamins for pregnancy. Then their babies were born onto the blockchain. That baby, so the mother's information, how she was in the pregnancy, et cetera, et cetera, the baby, whatever else they collect on that baby, the baby's education, the baby's you know, any mental health issues, any physical health issues, et cetera, go on this blockchain, this baby. It allows for predatory finances to make money off these children and these people. And that's the social impact bond model where investors put forward some money. They say there's some modelling as to human beings need to behave like they need to get from A to D. Once they get from A to D, the government pays those investors their principal money plus interest. So they can get up to like 10% a year betting, betting on people and they're doing it and they're doing it in Africa to start, but they've got social impact bonds in Australia. But this is where we are. We're just going to be commodities with behavioral change linked into, you know, getting us to behaviorally change and be flexible and be, you know, whatever the words they use. And they're not coming to me right now, resilient and flexible, dependent on their models of what they are. And if we allow this to go ahead, we are just, we are just pawns in a game. 
in a video mm. game. We're just pawns in a game of a very, very few small people at the top. And it, people need to understand this, that this is this is what is really at stake with this digital ID and the, the fourth industrial revolution where we merge, we merge humanity with biology with technology, basically. And it changes what it means to be human. And the main thing, like one of the main things is that we no longer, so, you know, we live now and if we make enough money, like there's problems inherent in our system. I've always thought that it, it can be very unfair. But basically, if you can find yourself a good enough job and you can you can get some housing and you can buy products and whatever else, that's just up to you in a way. Now that's not going to be the case. Your digital ID and everything that's on there is going to determine what you can access, when you can access and how you can access it. You know, th yeah. th th this is the matrix, right, Kate? This is exactly, if you go back and watch that 1999 movie, this is leading to that point now that you, you're literally living in this digital world that you make your contributions, whatever, you put on your virtual reality headset and you think that you're living in, in some form of uh, organised paradise when in actual reality you, you go outside and realise what it, what it's become. And, and the most disappointing part is the deception, the idea that everything by the government is always sold to us either as for our safety or for our convenience and the amount of money that they'll spend to tell you that it's convenient, but it's compulsory convenience, it just it beggars belief. Uh, it, it, and, and so the other thing, of course, is it always relies on compliance. One wonders, therefore, if the, um, the whole pandemic COVID narrative, whatever, uh, was all about the idea of a trial close to see how compliant we really were. But at the same time, we've learned now that the, the the WEF at Davos was talking about rebuilding trust. So they realised that they may have gone a little bit too far here. But at the same time, they're not wasting a single moment. It is full speed ahead with the next agenda point, as we're talking about here in today's show. Where do we go? Where do we go next in terms of um, uh, the rearguard response action is it still a case of building more information or is it a case for people to say okay now now's the time i, I start taking action at the very at the very least i get onto community um voice australia and start there where, where do they go yeah go to communityvoiceaustralia.org i have a substack as well kate mason um a substack so that's where I put more, you know, the complex information that people can find out. Some of that won't go on Community Voice Australia. Um, so, yes, I think people have to know what we're fighting and what we're up against. We have to really work together, which is quite tricky. So um, Community Voice Australia is nonpartisan. We do not take a political view. We look at issues. Um, so anyone that wants to, you know, talk about a certain issue and done research will work with them. Um, it doesn't mean we have to agree on other things because I think what the main thing they've done is siloed us into these incredibly siloed positions where we can't be effective. And I just will not allow that. My fight is not with a normal person. It is not with a normal person. I'm not going to fight my community members or people who think differently than me. I have a real thing that needs that it needs attention and focus. Um, the other thing I just want to point out with the digital ID, when I put the submission into the government, I was going to share it. And then I saw the subclause or the clauses that said, you're not allowed to share this submission until the committee, the economics committee has said yes or no, they're going to accept your submission. And if they accept, they, it reads to me like if they accept one paragraph of, my, of the 19 pages, I cannot publish the full 19 pages. So I'm going to call them tomorrow because I think we need to be really, really on, you know, like really on these changes that are happening, which means that we actually are being silenced. Yes. Yeah. That is such an interesting point, isn't it, that uh, even the technique there to minimise a resistance to this almost mono uh, 
idea that you're not allowed to challenge. And of course, then it leads into the misinformation, disinformation scenario that, uh, of course, which means technically just means government censorship, because if it was based on facts, everything that uh, people said against the government during the pandemic era has, well, pretty much um, been verified in one way or another in terms of the uh, analytical criticism, fact-based knowledge that was anti the government message. And it was the government that was telling the fibs throughout that period, um, telling us things were safe and effective when there was no way they could even know that. Uh, it's an extraordinary uh, scenario uh, that, that we're living through right now, but we are certainly aware of the patterns and the behaviour and the way that the business model works for this uh, single globalist elite sprinkling out like an octopus into this into this uh, permeating governments around the world, all the way down to local governments. We haven't even got into um, global government yet, and that's a completely different story for another day, but we've hit the end of the hour and the end of the show. Kate, I want to uh, thank you again for the continued work that you do, not just for preparing for this show, but for the work that you do all the time around the, uh, around the place, non-stop delivering information that many of us just haven't got the time or the know-how to do. You've nailed it. So thank you again. That's a Kate Mason. Um, and yes, as I said, communityvoiceaustralia.org, the first place to go there in Kate's uh, Substack, katemason.substack. That's the end of today's show. Coming up next on TNT will be Charles Cobess with his Mind Medicine. Thanks for watching and listening to TNT with me.